I, I sometimes joke that or, or use a, an analogy around organ donation, right? You can have a healthy organ and you can have a healthy body, but if the body doesn't accept the organ, then it's not good for anybody, right? What are the barriers in the church for the youth that you're trying to reach? And how, do you, how does the church itself, and again, I'm defining church not as the building, but as the community, how does the church itself evolve in order to reach these missing voices? Welcome to the Missing Voices Podcast. This podcast is all about youth ministry, young people on the margins of society and the church, and how we might better love, serve, and learn from those young people. We're convinced that these often overlooked and forgotten adolescents belong in the church, and that our youth ministry should take them seriously. So with each episode, We'll take a look at these ideas and together wrestle with what the future of youth ministry might just look like. I'm Mary Sini, one of your co-hosts. And during this series, we will hear from some of our partners, coaches, theologians, and friends of the Missing Voices Project. So let's dive in. Today, we'll hear from Justin Farrell, who is a guru on all things concerning design thinking. We became connected with Justin early in the process of creating the Missing Voices Project as we sought to incorporate a forward-focused goal of innovative change for the future of youth ministry. Justin teaches design thinking at the Stanford D School, and so we asked him to bring this method of problem-finding and ideating to our Missing Voices cohort in the form of a design thinking retreat where we could all learn and grow and possibly offer very different ways to engage in the space of youth ministry. You are in for a treat. Get ready to hear some new ways of working with the communities we love and serve, and hopefully you'll find some takeaways for yourself as well. All right, everybody, we have Justin Farrell on the phone here with us. Justin, are you there? Yes. Excellent. Thank you for joining us. Justin comes to us from Stanford. He works at the D School there, and he is an experienced educator and creative leader that has worked with uh, global 500 companies doing innovation work. So companies like the Dow Jones, Facebook, Fidelity Investments, Google. You might have heard of them, you know, Google, (laughs) the United Nations, the U.S. Department of State and World Economic Forum. Uh, so, Justin, you've had a bit of experience because I've only read about 10% of the bio here so far. Um, <laughs> he comes to us from the Washington Post prior to that, prior to being at Stanford, and, and is the founder of the Professional Fellows Program at the Institute of Design at Stanford University, known as the D School. So, naturally, Justin, we are talking about youth ministry. <laughs> oh, Justin, thanks so much for having me. Yes, I, I've been really fortunate to get to work with uh, a lot of interesting folks in an interesting context and, and try to be a resource for them, um, particularly around this uh, uh, pedagogy of design thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, how, do you, how do you understand the people that you're trying to serve and, uh, and create experiences and in some cases in company contexts, you know, products and, and services that are meaningful for them, right? And, and mm-hmm. that, that really applies kind of across across the spectrum, kind of wherever people are involved, how do you understand people's behavior in their context to be a resource for them? So I'm mm-hmm. um, very blessed to, to get to do that work and, and, and happy to be here with you and, and chance to share uh, our, my perspective on, on some of that. Sure, yeah. So, you know, 
in the bigger picture here, we're running the Missing Voices Project, mm -hmm. and this initiative is aimed at helping congregations develop new expressions of youth ministry. So innovation around youth ministry focused on young people at the margins of the church and of society. And so we approached uh, your team of folks at the D School and ended up being able to talk to you about that. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like an interdisciplinary moment. I mean, we in the youth ministry world, uh, we talk a lot about Bible and ethics and we talk a lot about culture. Uh, but I don't know that very often we have uh, known to go to folks like you for help to pull on the tools of design thinking uh, as a way to better love and serve folks. So I would love for you to kind of, you know, I don't know, maybe help build that bridge for a moment and help make sense of that move um, and then introduce us to sort of the basics or the fundamentals of design thinking, if you could. Sure thing. Yeah. And and I also just want to say for folks, um, when you reached out, we knew we were on the right track because you and I have so many overlaps in our lives. Um, right. You know, that <laughs> I actually grew up really close to St. Augustine, uh, you know, and, and really close to Flagler. A lot of my friends from high school went to Flagler. I grew up in the church, uh, had been in youth, uh, you know, youth groups. Uh, my two older brothers are both uh, at, at different times in their lives ordained ministers. And so um, right. You know, what you're working on is, is I know where you are and I know what you're doing and, and, and it's really important to me too. So, um, yeah, great. you know, uh, and I worked at the newspaper in St. Augustine. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so getting to, to help with the missing voices project has been a real gift for me and I appreciate it. Um, so, you know, design thinking, uh, it, it's a way of working that's about connecting with people that you're trying to create something for. And uh, really, the history of it is um, grew out of product design. Uh, the sort of recognized founder of design thinking is a, a gentleman named David Kelly. And David is a real mentor to me. He's a professor at Stanford and, um, and also the founder of the design studio, design firm IDEO, which is, um, which is basically the premier design, one of the premier design firms in the world. They have about a dozen offices around the world. Uh, David, you know, uh, has a product design background, got a, a graduate degree in product design from Stanford, um, went on to design the first mouse for Apple computer, designed the Palm Pilot, designed stand-up toothpaste dispensers, all kinds of physical products that we use. And, and that's really where this design thinking process grew from is, you know, when you're creating a product like that, how do you engage with people in order to understand what they need? And, and kind of started out in the more technical space, right? Like if we're creating a toothbrush, we need to understand how people are going to hold it and the size of the handle and, you know, all those kinds of things. And over the years, it's really evolved and, and uh, been applied now in, in new ways. So not just understanding sort of what people need at a, at a physical level, but trying to understand what people feel and think and believe at an emotional level. And I think technology and, and, and the internet and things like that have only made that uh, more important, right? Because it's not just um, how people uh, engage with, with what we put in the world, but also how it makes them feel when they do it. Hmm. Hmm. Gotcha. So understanding, connecting, uh, I mean, it sounds like uh, a heavy focus on the sort of um, the experience of the end user really trying to get into their, uh, I guess, the experience of whatever it is you're trying to provide, right? 
Yeah. And, you know, the one of the uh, advantages or one of the assets, I guess, of design thinking is that it's not really domain specific. Right. I mean, um, as I mentioned, kind of, I think, uh, grew out of business. But mm-hmm. at, at the D school at Stanford, you know, most of the classes that we teach and work that we do is really more around uh, social impact. Um, we have classes in, you know, startups and things like that. I mean, we're in Silicon Valley um, and we do executive education with people from big companies and, uh, and and a lot around how to create room for risk in a big company and how to change organizations. Um, and I, I spend a lot of time on that work as well. But in our classes and with our students, you know, we're, we're tackling kind of multi-stakeholder complex challenges like... Um, you know, how do we encourage uh, organ donation? How do we make sure folks are, you know, have earthquake preparedness, you know, for people who live here in the Bay Area? Um, you know, how do we work on uh, school systems and how do we bring experiential learning into our schools and and increasingly um, issues of social justice and equity and creating opportunity across, um, you know, civic engagement and, and, um, and politics and all kinds of things like that, right? So, it's basically the, the, the shorthand I, I like to use is design thinking can be useful for any challenge you're working on that affects people. And, mm-hmm. and that is almost everything, right? So if yeah. understanding people and their motivations and, and their needs is useful, then some of the tools of design thinking can be a resource for that. Part of your work with us was you actually led a design thinking retreat for all of our congregations that are participating in the Missing Voices Project. And one of the things that sort of came out of that was an awareness of, uh, you know, you use the phrases uh, social impact or creating room for risk. One of the things that came out of that uh, time for people as they sort of reflected on it, you know, in the weeks that followed, this idea of embracing failure, uh, this idea of being willing to take risk, this idea of um, being sort of focused on the young people that they really want to serve, right? So I'm, I'm looking at my, in, in my office right now, I'm looking at the picture of the team of folks that is going to design uh, an expression of youth ministry for young people living in a group home in foster care, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Very specific um, set of constraints and realities. And I would say that more often than not, that I mean, that's clearly a problem, right? They, those young people have not been really um, centered or focused on in the church in some specific ways. Mm-hmm. And so how would you help a group like that start to move towards those young people? I mean, they have all the best sort of um, intentions, right? Uh, but my guess is that they have a few assumptions about what's needed that may or may not actually be be true. What design thinking can really help us with is is exactly what you just said, right? How do you challenge the assumptions that you might have, right? And rather than, you know, creating a way of serving those youth in the foster home and then hoping that they will engage with it, right? With design thinking, we would first engage with them, try to understand uh, their life, you know, try to understand how they make decisions in their life. What are, what are their routines? What are, the, what are the constraints they have? What are the, um, you know, what are the advantages they have? What is the community like uh, where they live? Um, what's important to them? You know, what are they looking for? Uh, where might we be able to use our expertise to help them? Right. And so you have a reason why you begin a project, right. With design thinking, of course, like, and in this case, right, there's a very clear reason, but rather than jumping straight to the solution, 
straight to the program you're going to build or the interaction or the, the ministry in this case, you would um, engage with the people that you're going to serve before you get to those solutions in order to reframe the problem by incorporating their perspective, their behavior into the way that you're thinking about the challenge. No, is, is the assumption just then that like, like, uh, like maybe like a, a humble recognition of the fact that I probably just don't actually know what it is that they want, need, like I don't understand without actually asking them in the first place. Yeah, and it, it, part of it is that that we don't know, and part of it is that um, we we wouldn't get to that depth of understanding otherwise. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the it, it's not so much there's there's a there's a famous quote that's attributed to Henry Ford that I like to use to illustrate this point, which is if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses, right? So. Yeah. It's not that we're going, you know, in this case, these youth and saying, what, what do you want? What do you want from us in terms of ministry? Right. <laughs> what would work for you? Right. Because that's not really about them. It's more about you. It's asking them to respond to your idea. Right. Or like right. In, a, in a company context, right. Focus group testing. You know, do you like this version? Or do you like this version? Right. Again, that's that's more about feedback on you than it is about understanding them. So with design hmm. thinking, the best phrase I think of is is. Uh, understanding other people's behavior in their context. What can we, what can we learn about them? What's important to their life? It's our job to figure out then how to use our expertise to create something that's going to be meaningful for them. So we're not going and saying, Hey, you know, come up with an idea for an automobile, even though that word and that thing doesn't exist yet. Right. It's yeah. saying, Hey, tell me about you, you know, um, and I think that, you know, those of you who work in youth ministry, you, you already have a strong um, aptitude for this, right? I mean, you, the, uh, surely one of the reasons why you're in, in this work is because uh, you connect with people and you believe in people and you want to serve people, right? And so it's, it's really just uh, putting some tools around that to help you do that maybe in more intentional ways. And then also to enable the people that you're working with to create these ministries also be able to do it and make sense of it and, and get to something that's meaningful for the youth that, that you serve. Yeah, no, that's good. Well, okay. Say more about the tools. Like you just said, you're going to put some tools around this work so that you can actually understand here, you know, attend to these young people. What would be some of those tools that you think might uh, resonate or, or be accessible for a youth minister? Sure. So, you know, just uh, at the at the beginning, one of the uh, one of the tools that I shared in, in our workshop is called an empathy plan. Right. So so who, who do we know who to how do we know who to go and talk to? Right. Do we want to talk to just anyone or we do, do we want to be intentional about, you know, this, these interviews that we do? Um, and because we can't talk to everyone, you know, we want to be intentional. We want to have a reason around why we're engaging with with um, specific folks. So the empathy plan helps us look like, look at what is the ecosystem of this challenge that we're facing? Who are the different groups of people who are um, represented in this ecosystem? So again, just off the top of my head now, when we talk about a group home, you know, there are the young people who live in the home. There are the people who lead in the home, uh, you know, the people who take care of the, the, the building, uh, people who prepare meals, um, you know, there's also in these young people's lives, there's, you know, wherever they go to school, there are the teachers, there are the activities that they engage in, their coaches and mentors and, you know, all of the sort of people within the ecosystem of their lives. And you can say now, 
which group do we want to prioritize? So maybe obviously we want to prioritize the youth experience. So, so who do we want to engage with? There's a, uh, a phrase in design thinking we use that we call the extreme user. And an extreme user is someone who represents an extreme need within um, the context of the challenge that we're taking on. So you might think of an extreme user in a, in a demographic way, right? So staying with the, with the group home example, you know, maybe we want to talk to uh, young men who are, you know, 14 years old, um, you know, who uh, had this experience that led to them living in the group home, right? That would be kind of a demographic example. We can also uh, look at extremes in a psychographic, which is just an advertising term that's more about values and beliefs and, and experiences. So you could say, we want to talk to a person who, a youth who is in their, uh, who has lived in more than five different group homes, right? In order to understand what happens when they get to a new place and how do they build hmm. relationships in a new place um, or what, what barriers do they face? Or we want to talk to someone who, has lived in this specific group home for the longest amount of time? How do they uh, engage with uh, new young people when they come in? How do they, um, you know, how do they feel about being the, the person with the most tenure in this, in this place? How does that show up in the way that they interact with other people in that space, right? So, so just kind of, and, and there's a reason why we're doing that, right? So maybe we want to talk to the people who have lived there the longest because, we think that uh, they could become the, the, the peers who lead, uh, you know, ministry activities within the home because maybe they have some authority or, or the other um, children look up to them or, or whatever it is, right? So, so you, right. You, you just think about, like, what's important uh, in the context of the challenge that we're facing? What do we think are the important sort of behaviors or um, specifics about an individual's experience? And then how do we find those individuals and start to learn from their experience if our assumptions are correct or even um, how do we start to see things and, and try to understand from their perspective uh, what that feels like and what they think about it. Yeah, it's fascinating because as you're describing all that, um, I'm, I'm just aware <clears throat> that most people in charge of youth ministry on some level are thinking about our sort of quote unquote events that take place in our space that we run, you know, things like that. Right. Right. And when you think about, you know, and I think this word design might lend itself to thinking even more that way. Right. Like I need to design the space to foster that sort of experience, or um, I need to design an agenda that, you know, facilitates this type of an event or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, when in reality, what you're trying to get at is like, Hey, like, you got to leave the church. You got to leave the youth group. You got to leave all that and take your experience, your insight, your understanding and go into the space, into the world, into the sort of the ecosystem, their realm uh, to get to know them, to get to know that reality, uh, to better understand from within. Is that fair? Like, how would you qualify? Yeah, that? that's that's totally fair. And, and the only thing I would add to that is that you would do that before you then design the thing. Right. So it's not it's not an either or. It's just that, you know, and specifically in, in the amazing work that, that you all are doing, when you're talking about missing voices, if you spend all your time, you know, creating a better, you know, um, activity at church, uh, you're still not going to get the people who are not showing up at church, right? Right. <laughs> they're not going to be there, right? So they're not going right. to experience it, right? That's the whole reason with the missing voices. So, so we need yeah. to understand, like, 
why are they not showing up? You know, yeah. what are the barriers? What are the what are the tangible ones? You know, maybe it's the time of day. Maybe it's the transportation. Right. right? It could be something like that. But what are the intangible ones? Maybe it's an experience they had when they were younger um, that turned them off to the church. Maybe it's, you know, um, people at the church uh, mm-hmm. who, who are the barrier uh, for for folks feeling welcome. Maybe they don't feel like they have the clothes to wear to church. Right. Or whatever it is. Right. right? So we won't understand that unless we get proximate with the people we're trying to serve. And, yeah. and particularly at the outset, in order to try to, you know, try to understand that before we get to the solution. If we're only focused on making better what we've done before, then what we're really talking about is incremental innovation, right? Yeah, We're going to have a better youth program at church, which is fine, right? right? And, and we always do want to have that kind of continuous improvement. With design thinking, we're really looking for ideas that are more, you know, potentially transformational. Right. And I apologize for the jargon, but it's, it's not about incremental improvement on what previously exists. It's what might we do. Right. As we recognize that the world's changing, as we recognize that, you know, youth needs are changing and, and, and um, the ability to reach people is changing with technology. Right. Then rather than just defaulting to what we did yesterday or last month or last year, we're saying, what might we do? And, and, and how, how might that, um, reach a, a deep user need that's not being met right right yeah well i i, I want to relate this to another one of the episodes that's a part of this series when we were talking with ben connor from western theological seminary we talked about uh, his specialty is working with uh, young folks in the disabilities community mm-hmm. and um one of the things we talked about was this idea that you a lot of churches think they have solved the problem by building physical ramps right like oh great <laughs> Now you can access this space mm-hmm. that you were never cared to be a part of before. Now there's a ramp, right? You can be here now. Mm-hmm. And he said that, you know, while that's a great step, and of course we have to do that, <clears throat> what was actually needed was social ramps. Like they're needed to, the idea that someone belonged there mm-hmm. needed to be addressed, mm-hmm. not just could they get in the door, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I thought that was really interesting to break it down that way, physical ramps versus social ramps. Yeah. and. This idea that like, yes, you're meeting like a surface level need, like literally the wheelchair needs to be able to get into the door, but there's a much bigger need that if, if that's not addressed, it'll never matter if there's ramps, Right. you know, right. that seems to fit with what you're talking about. And I, it's so interesting though, that you have to trust the process to take the time to listen so that you're not putting the right answer in the wrong question, you know, or you're, you're trying to do something that was never requested in the first place. And then you're, you know, banging your head on the wall, wondering why isn't this working or why isn't anybody showing up? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that example of the ramps, you know, and it also just reminds us that, you know, the, the church is not the building, it's the people, right? Right. You know, we've, right. we've, we've created buildings to contain mm-hmm. the people and to give us a, you know, an intention of how to come together. But you know, right now, the way the world is right now, most of us, a lot of us are not coming together, right? So does that mean that the church doesn't exist (laughs) because we can't go on Sunday or Wednesday night or whatever it is? Um, And so, yeah, I love that idea of social ramps and, and what are the barriers? Where where do folks not, you know, not feel welcome, right? Right. Um, I I also think that there's a, you know, just in my experience, uh, that one of my assumptions, I guess, is, is that for those of you in ministry, right, you, you have your, your ministry, your program, you have your, your youth group, you have the things that you do, 
regularly within the youth group. But then you also have the individual relationships that you have with your youth, right? Mm. And you understand uh, them and their families. And as they, as they grow, you're in touch with them and different events that are happening in their lives that affect, you know, how they feel and, and how they, and how they navigate. Um, and, and so this is not dissimilar from that, right? It's, it's just expanding those individual relationships to understand other young people that, you know, are not showing up for the events. Right. And, right. and specifically, you know, groups of young people that, that you really think that your community should be serving. Um, and so again, it's, it, it, it's in some ways, I feel like, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the folks I work with, um, you know, on, on the corporate side, uh, some of this, the empathy that we talk about and trying to understand people and understand what's important to them, those are more new skills in some cases than I suspect it is for, you know, for youth mm. ministers. Um, mm. But one of the bigger challenges perhaps is not just in the understanding youth and, and getting proximate with them and serving them, but also the, how do you then bring them into the tradition of the church? Right. Yeah. And this, yeah. you know, that's, um, I, I sometimes joke that, or, or use a, an analogy around organ donation, right? You can have a healthy organ and you can have a healthy body, but if the body doesn't accept the organ, then it's not good for anybody. Right. And so, right. you know, uh, or blood type or something like that. Right. So what are the barriers in the church for the youth that you're trying to reach and how do you, how does the church itself? And again, I'm defining church, not as the building, but as the community, how does sure. the church itself evolve in order to reach these missing voices? Well, Justin, if you could just answer that in like the next couple of minutes, that'd be great. <laughs> I'm just imagining right now, like every youth worker listening is like, amen. Like that's exactly like maybe the biggest hurdle is, is the church itself. It's us, you know? Yeah. But I, what you're saying absolutely resonates. I mean, again, I'm looking at the pictures in my office of the people that are leading these projects and two in particular have just talked about this recently. One, uh, they're working with teen moms and teen dads and their whole thing is that like these young people, they wear this uh, sense of shame and judgment is the way that they perceive that the church will accept them or receive them is through judgment and shame mm -hmm. with this child that they're holding, right? Mm -hmm. And so if the church doesn't adapt and, and try to overcome that, whether that's true or not, it doesn't even matter if that's how the church feels. It's the perception that the young people have of the church. Mm -hmm. And so if they can't overcome that, it will never matter. Like those social ramps, quote unquote, won't be uh, activated in any meaningful way if the young person knows I don't belong here from the outset, mm. you know, or one of the other churches that we're working with, they're uh, working with kids in the queer community. And they say that we have kids that come to youth group because they know they're loved and welcome here. And this is a, a safe space for them. But they also sort of jokingly talk about, there's no way I could ever go to like big church because mm. like I, I don't fit in there, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so there is a real sort of distance between um, what it means to have the organ accepted into the body mm -hmm. to use your, yeah. <laughs> to use your, metaphor. and I think that that's a real challenge for this is to say, gosh, you know, youth ministry, Ken, the Dean talks about it this way, that youth ministry is the R and D department of the church. Right. Um, and so we'll let the youth minister go and play with some of these ideas. The question is, will it come back to the church and sort of infect the church uh, for the better? So, yeah, yeah, no, I love that. I mean, there's, there's so much there, right? So th there are some, like frameworks and principles of organization design and systems thinking that I think really apply here. Right. And I, I want to start with 
kind of where you finish there, which is that, um, so I agree, like, in, in just generalizing, I think, I think youth ministers have bandwidth to do things differently within a church structure because you are the R and D department. And in some cases, you know, you're the, you're the cool one, you're the creative one, right? That's expected of you. Oftentimes youth ministers are younger, you know, earlier in your ministry, um, you know, maybe you, you, you play the guitar or something, right? You're expected to be kind of the cool kid. I, I joke about, um, you know, in my family, I have two older brothers and I'm the youngest and I was the long hair kid, right? And, and I always think like every parent likes to have, you know, the, the one kid that's the long hair kid. They, they can say like, you know, here's my oldest and, and look at all the things they're accomplishing and here's my middle child and look at the things they're doing. It's amazing. And, and here's my little, here's my little artist over here. Right. And it's, it's the same, you know, I was a designer and it's the same kind of thing in a church, right? It's like, and here's our youth minister. Isn't she awesome? You know, isn't she cool? Listen to the music she's playing. Right. And so, so you get a little bit of room to do things differently there just because of, you know, your age and the, and the youth that you work with and, and people expect something different. Now, they don't expect that to change the whole culture of the church though. Right. And that's where the sort of fear comes in is, uh Oh, like, who are we becoming? You know, it's fine if you experiment over here, but if it, if it starts to require something of us, then that means we have to change and change is hard and totally generalizing here, right? Like people have different thresholds for change, but for, for all of us, like any, any time we're working against the status quo, Right. Remember that that means that all of, of the processes and the behaviors and the culture is kind of flowing against us. Right. Because we're we're working we're working in the other direction. And so um, and that's not because people are mean or there's, you know, necessarily or that there's something wrong with them. It's just normal. Right. For me, it's really helpful to understand that that inertia and status quo is normal. Right. And that okay. in order for me to work against that, I have to be intentional and somewhat, somewhat fearless in a way. Right. And, and for me with design thinking that where the fearlessness comes from is the purpose of the people I'm doing it for. Right. So in this case, you're talking about, you know, the youth, right. And, and you really don't need, uh, I'm sure any more purpose than that. So language can be a, a, a real opener here for people. Right. And one of the frameworks that we use in organizations is we talk about the core versus the new, right? And there's a, a mentor of mine, a business school professor here at Stanford named Charles O'Reilly. And he has a model called organizational ambidexterity. How do you build ambidexterity into your organization? How do you get better, not just at the core, what you've always done and improve you know, your, your core products and services, or in this case, your church, right? Your core experience as a church. But how do you also explore the new at the same time? What might be possible? And how do you do that as the exploration on the new being a resource to the core, right? So rather than being a threat and saying, you know, we're going to come in and change the church, it's saying we're going to explore what we might become in order to evolve who we are, right? And we're going to do that because we are all part of the whole, right? And, and we recognize that life is not static and our community is changing. And, you know, if we want to continue to serve the purpose that we have here in this community, then of course we have to change, right? We can't stay the same as we always were. And, and so a lot of times I think that language becomes the opener because we can agree with that, right? At a, at a communication level. Um, now it's when you step into it and start doing it, that's where things get really hard, right? Because it's, it's easy to say, yes, of course we want to change. And you're like, okay, let's do this differently tomorrow and be like, wait a minute, we can't do that. Right. Um, <laughs> 
but but another another uh, sort of principle from from academia to remember there is uh, a concept called guided mastery. So I'll mm. share another story real quick, and then I'll let you ask another question, Justin. Sorry. Okay. Um, so th there's a psychologist at Stanford named Albert Bandura, and and I don't know uh, Dr. Bandura personally, uh, but David Kelly does, and, and I've learned this from hearing David talk about uh, Dr. Bandura. So. Um, Bandura studies behavior change, right? And in his studies of behavior change, what we learn from him is that behavior change doesn't happen in one giant leap. It happens in a series of small successes, right? And so what we mean by that is if you come into an organization, you say, here's what we did yesterday, and we're going to completely change everything and do it this way tomorrow. Um, that's a recipe for disaster, right? People will, it's a binary shift. And therefore, there is inherent conflict in the binary shift, right? So how do we learn as we go? How do we grow into the change? So Bandura's research is with uh, people who have phobias of snakes, okay? <laughs> and what he does is rather than bring someone into a room and say, hey, you're afraid of snakes, the best way to get over it is for me to uh, throw a snake on your shoulder, right? Deal with <laughs> it, right? That that doesn't work, okay? You know, people get scared, they have a heart attack, whatever, right? So um Rather than doing that, what he does is he'll bring the patient into a room and tell them there is a snake in the adjacent room behind that door, right? And you have to get comfortable with the idea that there's a snake in the room next door. And as soon as you get comfortable with that uncomfortability, he makes you a little more uncomfortable. He'll bring a chair into the room. He says, now sit down in the chair, right? It's harder to, to run away. As soon as they get comfortable with that, he'll move the chair closer to the door between the rooms. Right? And they get comfortable with that, he moves it closer to the door. Comfortable with that, he moves it closer to the door. Now they have their hand on the door. Right Now, as soon as they're comfortable with that, they open the door. They can see the snake in the other room. They're comfortable with that, they move closer to the snake. Right, So on and so forth. So eventually, through this series of small successes, again, the principle is called guided mastery. Right, They learn to overcome their fear by getting comfortable being uncomfortable at every step of the way toward that outcome. And behavior change in organizations is the same way, right? How do you give people a little bit of uncomfortability in order to build their resilience, right? The way they mm. deal with that uncomfortability. And then as you do that, you push them a little more and a little more and it grows over time. And then suddenly that change is not so scary, right? So I think this is a, a principle that also applies in this situation. Anytime you're trying to shift behavior, right, instead of, you know, you may have a, a, an outcome that you're trying to achieve. You want, you want people to hold the snake eventually, right? And you're doing it, in this case, for their own good, to overcome this fear. But you can't go too far too fast, or the opposition will rise up. The, the antibodies in the organization will sort of snuff out um, your efforts. And so think of it instead in, in a guided mastery approach. I mean, Justin, as you are walking us through that process. I feel myself resisting because I am one of those people that is afraid of snakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me you know, too. Like, too fast, bro, too fast. Me like, too. But I get it. I mean, like I could, I could imagine, I've long said I would love to just not be afraid of snakes. Mm. Like, so I could imagine <laughs> that being effective. But even as you were just saying it, my palms were like sweaty. So I <laughs> I am the antibody that's like, get out of here. Right. Well, and most of us, most of us have that reaction to change in general, right? I mean, right. and and this is another sort of the the rational communication of it that that I like to to use. Um, you know, if we always do 
Well, well, one, like we are drawn to things that we're good at, right? And we start mm-hmm. to learn what we're good at. Most of us at an early age, usually something in school, you know, because of grading systems or whatever. And, and once we realize what we're good at, we want to learn more about that thing. And we want to get better at that thing, right? And, and, you know, school systems are shifting, but I think, you know, it, traditionally they largely sort of focus us into becoming specialists, right? We're good at math, so we become an engineer. We're, you know, we're good at science, and so we, you know, go to medical school or, or whatever it might be, right? Um, it's not that we don't want people to be experts in what they're good at, but we don't want to be constrained to um, limit ourselves with the application of that expertise in a traditional way, right? It's how can we take what we're good at and apply it in an unconventional way, right? And so that's sort of the, the, the one of the first principles uh, that we teach is is what David Kelly calls creative confidence, uh, and and what we mean by that is do you believe that you can accomplish what you set out to do, even though you've never done it before, or in a way that you've never done before, and and that's often the biggest barrier for people when it comes to change, right? Is that it, it's just much more comfortable to stick with what we know, right? But the, the the problem there is that if we only stick with what we know, then we're not going to create anything new, right? We're just going to create what we made the day before. And that's fine if what we're working on is core, because that's just sort of incremental. But if we're trying to figure out what we might become, then we have to do something different. Now, if we do something different, we are inevitably going to make mistakes. And this is another big barrier for people, this idea of failure, right? We want to avoid making mistakes, most of us. But the only way to avoid making mistakes is to do the same thing over and over again, right? And if we do the same thing over and over again, we're never going to create anything new. So when we're trying to create something new and we believe as a church that we need to develop new programs, new outreach, reach you know, uh, new people in the community, right? If we believe that, then that means we're going to try some things that we haven't done before, which means we're going to make mistakes. But we're going to look at those mistakes not as failures but as learning, and that learning is going to determine then what we do next. If we just shut things off because we made a mistake, then the learning never has any value for us, right? We have to keep going and incorporate what we learn in order to, in order to grow from it and, and evolve and, and change, right? So this kind of way of talking, and you know I'm a talker, Justin, this kind of way of talking can help get people on board with the change, right, um, before you get started. And getting people on board is a great first step, right? That's coming into the room and telling them there's a snake next door, right? We agreed on this and now I'm doing it, right? So, you, you know, allow me to continue. Um, mm. So anyway, I, I just think that language and the way we um, sort of build, uh, build momentum together, you know, organizational change doesn't happen um, at an individual level. You can be the most radical leader. You can be you know, the most creative person, but if you can't get other people on board with the change, and in fact, what you achieve will be better if you're doing it with other people and and specifically Mm -hmm. people who maybe don't agree with you, right? It's in that conflict that new ideas emerge, but if you can't build momentum like a wave, then, um, then you won't get there, right? And it'll just be frustrating. You'll burn out. So, um, so recognizing that this work happens with the church, uh, and must happen with the church in order to build a sustainable system to reach the youth that you're trying to reach, um, I think is an important step. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you just described um, over the last however many minutes here, the a bit of the culture of what we're trying to do. And earlier on, you said, you know, this idea of purpose, like having to get clear about purpose. 
for example, like with the snake analogy, like I'm, I mean, I want to get over it, but not enough to go and sit in the room and move closer to the room and sit in a chair and touch the doorknob, right? Like <laughs> I could do, this, you know, um, I could go to the alligator farm here in St. Augustine and I could just incrementally walk closer to the cages where the snake is and I could go hold one of those snakes. Mm -hmm. But I've been there a thousand times and I've never done it because I'm not motivated. I don't have a clear sense of purpose. But with this project, it has been very, very clear that when we know and love someone who has been marginalized by the church, by society, has been, you know, broadly speaking, overlooked by the church or forgotten or left out of the church, all of a sudden getting clear on that purpose is not very hard. Uh, and our working assumption, sort of the hypothesis of the Missing Voices Project, is that if we design and can actually be in ministry with and alongside and for these young people on the margins, I think we're going to learn something about youth ministry and about the church that could only be learned at this particular location. Mm -hmm. And that there's a specific contribution that can't be made anywhere else because of the unique perspective and experience and gifts and insights that exist at the margins uh, that we are responsible to go and find and listen to and attend to. And so getting clear on that purpose uh, seems to be a big part of what it means to even begin the process of the guided mastery uh, to be open to that. So, yeah, I, I love that. Wow. I think that's, I think that's um, really beautifully put, uh, you know, it's in our unique contributions in our communities that then collectively, you know, we create the wave right that that shifts and and expands you know the um the value of the work that you do you know i mean mm -hmm. there's a couple of things that i want to say there um sometimes when i'm working with companies that have become uh you know market leaders in in their field right and and they're you know very predicated on doing what they did the day before and sort of incremental um advantages and they're trying to bring new ways of working and, and ways of changing one of the ways that we sort of remind people and empower people is to say, well, what did the founders do, right? Like this company wasn't always this big. It started in a garage, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of garage uh, founding stories here in, in Silicon Valley, right? Started in a garage, the founders were scrappy. They were trying to invent something new. They didn't have a market. They didn't have customers, right? And so can we bring back some of that behavior, some of that mentality? As Christians, we have the greatest founder of all, right? <laughs> in Jesus, right, right. you know, and, and I know we, we have a great, you know, what would Jesus do? And when I think about that, um, you know, it, we all know, right? Jesus, Jesus reached out to the unchurched, right? Jesus reached out to, um, to people who were not accepted by mainstream society. And we have so many stories about that, right? So that can be a motivator to empower us to do the work, regardless of the obstacles, the other thing that can really help us is the community that we have, right? And one of the things I loved about um, interacting with the, the youth leaders there in Florida and, and the workshop we did with Missing Voices was, was how they were such great examples and support for each other, even though they're mm -hmm. different people, even though they're from different communities, even though they're working with different youth, right? It's that community of practice can be the, the, the blood that sustains us as we're doing this work, right? And and those of you listening to this podcast, right? It's the way you support each other and, and build each other up because this is hard. This is hard to do. Um, so anyway, those, those things um, can, can keep us going. And the, and the other thing I'll say, and not to be you know, too much too, too um, uh, contrarian about the church is that is, you know, if we don't work with 
people who are not being served, then we may end up being the ones at the margins, right? Mm-hmm. And and yeah. I think a lot of people would say it's already true when you look at you know the the percentage of people who are regular um, church going who who you know have a daily walk right it's it's less than the majority in this country right and and I think um, you know and we see uh, different directions that this country is taking and we see a need now more than ever right for us to understand each other to to build community. You know, communities are not um, groups of people who all agree, right? Communities are groups of people who respect each other and are resilient, right? And and in the face of change, in the face of differences. Um, and, and, you know, some of this design thinking curriculum with empathy and how we understand people who are different from us, uh, some of it can help with that too. It can give us a, a tangible way to engage with our differences um, and to try to understand each other uh, so that we can move forward together. Right. Um, even even in a um, hopefully in, in a way that that values diversity um, in thought and opinion and everything else. That's excellent, man. I, I'm so grateful that I don't know how we ended up being connected, <laughs> but I'm so grateful that it happened. And I feel like um, this risk, quote unquote risk. Right. It's not too much of a risk to reach out to the D school, but the D school and the gifts that you've brought from there and your experience, your particular insights as a, as a guy who grew up in the church, things like that. This has been invaluable. And I'm so grateful for the way that you uh, cared for our folks when we had our retreat. I, I literally, I've had a number of them say, you know, these ideas are great, but I mean, I'm not really thinking about this for the missing voices project anymore. I'm thinking about it for our whole congregation. Mm. And so you would be pleased to know that these ideas are seeping up into the system already um, in a number of places. It's been really fun to to hear about that. So I hope that with other episodes within this season that we're going to be able to tackle the sort of concept of the extreme user, uh, looking at the extreme user experience of disability or experience of being a young person in the queer community in high school or in foster care, things like that. Um, but you have really opened that door for us to give us language and tools and equipped us to sort of move into that space. So we're really, really grateful. So thank you. Oh, Justin, it's my pleasure. And, and I just want to say, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's really, uh, it's really what you've done for me. I mean, I, um, the, my connection to the work that, uh, folks are doing in missing voices is because of the door that you opened for me. Right. And I often think of, you know, for me, I'm not on the front line. I'm not doing the work directly there. And, and yet in this way, just by talking about how and, and trying to be a resource for folks, I get to be a piece of that, right? And that's so re- yeah. that's so rewarding for me, right? Because I'm one step removed from actually serving the youth that you all are serving in your communities. And so to be a resource yeah. for that is just so rewarding. Uh, yeah. So thank you. Well, when this project comes to a close and we have all the cool stories to tell, <laughs> I'm sure that you get a copy of all that. Thank you. <laughs> no, I really appreciate that. And, and also anyone listening, you know, if you want to reach out or want to know more about design thinking, uh, uh, Justin can share my, my email and, and you can mm-hmm. find me on LinkedIn and I'm happy to be a resource for that as well. Yep. That's great. Well, as we close our time together, Justin, would you offer a sort of blessing or a charge to the folks listening here. We invite our guests of each episode to sort of close our time uh, with a blessing or a charge. These are youth workers. They're trying to figure this out. They just heard an incredible episode that they're probably gonna have to listen to like five times to really get all the ideas. Uh, But how would you want to close our time together? 
Well, I'd, I'd like to uh, close with a, a proverb um, that actually comes from uh, the Maori people of New Zealand. Uh, I've had oh. the, the great fortune of to go to New Zealand a few times and, and meet people there. And the Maori are the indigenous uh, people who live in, in that part of the world. And it's amazing, amazing culture um, and, and just amazing folks. And this proverb uh, from the Maori is, is really meaningful to me. It's very simple, very short. And it goes like this. What is the most important thing in the world? It is the people. It is the people. It is the people. Amen to that. Amen to that. (laughs) (laughs) Justin, thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Missing Voices podcast. If you want to be one of the first to hear about a new episode being released, or you want to make sure you don't miss out on hearing from one of our guests, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram and see what we're up to in St. Augustine within the Flagler College Youth Ministry Program. For resources connected to our podcast guests and topics, head over to the resources tab on the Missing Voices webpage at missingvoices.flagler.edu.